in the back who, who didn't hear was how, how is it, with the, um, particularly with the Anapanasati Sutta, it seems in the Anapanasati Sutta that the first stages have a lot to do with concentration. That's important uh, before one can be involved with um, developing awareness of body. And uh, so for my own personal practice, uh, what I can say is, is that the way my own collectedness often gathers is through awareness of body. So it's not like concentration happens first and then there is awareness of body. It's the awareness of body itself which gives the context for the um, body-mind system to relax and develop some sense of ease and well-being. So we think of concentration as related to our kind of like our cerebral cortex as being separated and disconnected from the, from the body. And, and sometimes we we can experience that focusing and concentrating on the breath kind of can feel that way. But when there's presence, and the presence is suffused throughout the whole body, that itself allows a collecting to take place, which then enables the sustained attention and awareness on the breath. So I don't see um, that the two things are separate. I think actually that as one becomes more fully embodied, then one's collectedness is uh, a direct result of that. And that direct result of collectedness is then uh, transferable to being able to stay with the feeling of the breathing and the corresponding uh, relationship with the uh, feeling and the resonances and how they are experienced in the heart and the mind. <clears throat> yeah, I know certain people are familiar with the structure of the Anapanasati Sutta. We have these what are called four tetras, which are four um, phrases concerning modes of, of practice. And the first tetrad, which is itself composed of four phrases, concerns itself with contemplating the breath as a bodily experience, something that happens to a body. So you breathing in and out and you contemplate, say, how long is this and short is this and what effect is it having in a bodily sense. So, second one deals with what effect is having more an emotive uh, sense, the kind of resonances that arise, we might say, in a heart way, which is Sankara, called, which is um, certain levels of joy, rapture, and so forth, and being able to modulate and, and calm those the third deals with how it's affecting the very quality of awareness or, or of, of the mindset, if you like, <clears throat> um, which is slightly different from the, the effect. Um, and, it's, and, the, and the fourth deals with, is a very different phrasing. And it deals with, it kind of acts in tandem with the other three. So the first three are dealing with particular locations of the breath experience or the breathing experience. First in terms of bodily, second in terms of resonance or emotive effect, and thirdly in terms of very quality of presence, of knowing. You see that, so those two last are somewhat difficult to distinguish, but the jitta sankara, the feeling tone, is more like the kind of vibrancy and resonance it occurs, we feel uplifted or joyful. And the jitta 
deals really with just the sense of, of, of knowing or receiving that. Um, so it is, it is definitely, those three do refer to different gradations of, of calm. <coughs> you know, so the entrance is always through the body. And then if, if that, as that begins to settle, you get these particular subtle emotive effects. And then they begin to settle, and you just get to some state of clarity, which is like clear knowing. And that's really the third, that's the third of the four. And those are all kind of what we might call the samatha aspects of it. Um, and, and the insight aspect of it is the fourth tetrad, which you then couple with any of the other three. So you might, as you're developing calm, you might contemplate the impermanence of this particular bodily effect. So, you know, and then that's the full, the full course. You know, the full, you know, the Buddha presents the total possibility. And what you've got to uh, remember when, when you're handling these suttas, and they seem a bit overwhelming, um, is like the Buddha has just presented all the possibilities that the most accomplished meditator could ever do, just, just for the record, you know. But you don't have to do them all. <laughs> you know, so, so if you, generally people stay with the first tetrad, you know, just steadying that, and that, that's considered in itself if you, enough for awakening. You contemplate the meanings of that, it's enough for awakening. And <coughs> so, of course, you know, in that, in that, in that bodily sense, there is um, you know, embedded in that. It's rather like you know, it's stratified. So within that, there is the knowing and there is the resonances. It's only at deeper layers of calm that they start to separate out. If you see what I mean? They're all mixed up together. So if you're dealing with the bodily thing properly and adequately, you're dealing with the mind, you're dealing with the heart, you're dealing with all of it. But uh, at certain jhanic levels, then some of those levels, those things start to to separate out and you can see them more specifically. I don't know. <laughs> so the question about karma formations and, and Buddhist philosophy. Um, mm. Really, my, my interest and in way of language deals with experience. Um, so I wouldn't like to comment on Buddhist philosophy, but um, to trying to respond with some generosity um, to your question. Um, 
essentially the calm, calm formations are, if you like, the things that get us going. They are the things where we feel motivated. Um, they are the things that catch us. They are things where, where meaning lies for us. They are the things where uh, we feel this is me. This is happening to me. This is important. This is frightening. They're, those are what we call karma formations, and they occur through um, you know, a sense of something contacts me, so a contact impression arises. I get some kind of volitional urge around that, like push it away, grab hold of it, um, change it, wiggle with it, whatever. So, that <coughs> so in that, um, um, there are all kinds of um, self-definitions that, that, that are occurring around that. You know, I am got at, I am touched, and I react or respond to that. Um, so, though there can be, this can be, say, you know, good, conventionally speaking, morally wholesome. You know, um, I'm touched by something, and it, it brings up the sense of, oh, I should do something good for this. And this is we call good karma, karma for. The um, karma always leaves this sense of a separate self, an I am doing things. So it, it, um, it, it, it act, it's a kind of an obstacle to liberation, as long as that, as long as it's not allayed. Mm. So uh, you know we have to, in a way, understand these these energies and these uh, impressions and these drives that, we, that occur through us as conditioned uh, rather than me and myself, something I have to be or have to do. Um, so then there's a sense of, um, we don't get caught in compulsive habits that way. See, like a present example would be, you know, uh, that you know, if I am seen as uh, an expert on Buddhism, and this is my true nature, then people ask me difficult questions. I feel compelled to answer them. <laughs> In order to prove that I'm, I'm, I'm a good Buddhist. And so, so then I'm actually creating karma for myself. I rest my case. <laughs>
for me, your koan speaks deeply to something which I have felt for years and uh, have endeavored to bring that into the middle of my practice. And uh, just as a kind of a, like a historical note, I remember at university going on a protest march with other students around nuclear arms and uh, various things, and, and remember the kind of um, unpeaceful way in which the political situation was navigated. And then began to get a feeling that for me, the, the kind of most powerful and potent way that I would be able to um, be a testimony for the disarmament of nuclear arms was if I attended to them here. And as perhaps ironic as it may seem, the longer I have spent time in these peaceful enclaves, such as retreat centers and monasteries, the more I am absolutely clear that there is nothing that happens out there that doesn't happen in here. And so for me, the meditation practice has been an intimate exploration of violence and greed and hatred and desperation and longing and sadness and despair, as well as joy and gladness and celebration. And for me, I have a tremendous amount of faith that as these demons are known and understood and released from their prisons and able to be held in the context of of understanding, then they are no longer enacted, unconsciously or consciously. It's precisely when these aspects of one's heart are not understood that they flow out in a way which is often unconscious and often extremely uh, destructive. So for me, there is no separation between this peaceful enclave that we're creating and the chaos of the world outside of us on one sense, because I can see that the elements that create the chaos are the very things that I sit with, open up to, release, and come to terms with. And as I feel a measure of, hmm, success is too bold a word, but a measure of ease, then I feel not only am I no longer participating on any kind of level, overt or covert, but also my skillfulness in being with other people who are in the midst of those demons increases enormously because I'm not encountering something which is unfamiliar to me. And also, I'm not working with something which frightens me. And so, I mean, I don't go to protest marches and there are many things that still cause a lot of fear in me. And there are certainly areas that I don't feel a sense of ease or release. 
but I can see to the measure that I have undergone this journey and this exploration, then my ability to be steady and peaceful and loving in the presence of these very forces which I find on some level so deeply unacceptable is directly the measure to which my presence has an effect on others. So that's been the answer of my koan, my way of dealing with it. Well, I think, you know, in my practice, one of the greatest challenges is to find the right relationship with the things that arise. And for me, it's a mixture of developing skillful means with the objects themselves. So, for example, like on the course of this retreat, we work with the body posture and we work with breath and we work with attitude. And these specific three examples are different things that we can bring to specific objects that arise. So we can affect the conditions through the attitude and the posture and the breath, to just name three specific examples that we've already worked with. However, what's also been talked about is developing a ground of being or a ground of presence. And for me, the way I relate to that is just the, the, the experience of awareness itself. So rather than talking about presence, I often use the word awareness. And for me, in practice, practice needs to be um, balanced with developing strategies and skillful means with bringing the objects themselves into balance, with relaxing into awareness and allowing things to be as they are, unfold according to the karma that they have, without identifying with them. And the image that I've always used, which for me has been really helpful and seems to resonate with others as well, 
He says that if we are just to tune into this room and this space, there are people in the room and I'm talking and the light's on, the Achan's here, we're all here, the carpet's here. And over the course of the next time, it's going to change. The voice is going to change, the talking's going to stop, the lights will go on, they'll go off, we'll do the end of the evening chanting, everyone will get up and leave, the night will finish, we'll have the morning, the light will come. And so what we experience is the objects in the room and they'll change, they'll all change. You know, eventually the carpet will change, eventually the shrine will change. You know, the people will change, the light will change, everything will change. But the kind of space in this room doesn't change. The space is defined by the walls, but not dependent on it. So the conditions that we experience in our mind and bodies have a relationship with other conditions. They arise dependent on things, they exist for a while, and And then when those conditions are no longer present, they end. But most of our life, we are absorbed into the objects, our thoughts and our feelings and our body experiences, our memories. And we take that to be who we are. We have a sense of ground, or we have a sense of awareness. There's actually a space into which everything arises. Then there can be a change of reference point. Instead of identifying with the objects themselves, there can be a container into which the objects arise. When that's present, there still can be the application of skillful means to bring about balance in the objects when that's suitable according to what's compassionate and wise. But our own inner sense of well-being is no longer dependent on the conditions themselves changing. And so, for example, if we're experiencing turbulence or agitation or fear or anger, and there's presence, presence of body, presence of mind, there is a space into which this experience can be known without having to absorb into the anger and feel identified with it then the anger can be felt as a physical, bodily experience. It can be felt in terms of the mood in the heart. It can be felt in terms of of the color in the mind and the associated thought patterns. But the presence, the awareness, the space is such that it can hold the whole arising, allow it to unfold, without getting into the normal habitual response which is to avoid, to deny, to reject, or to hold on. And when we stop responding in our habitual way, then we're ceasing to create an in karma with the arisings of the conditions. And then it can unfold and release and relax in a way where we don't have to do anything to it, but it itself is deconstructed and deconditioned by the fact that we're no longer identifying or reacting in any way, just through presence. But the challenge is, and the challenge for me, is is that there's times when I'm not present and awareness isn't strong enough and I am identified. And so there does need to be a real balance between bringing skillful means to bear to create the context where one has the spaciousness to allow and knowing when there is sufficient presence to allow things just to unfold as they do.
And so these two, the, the marriage of skillful means and pure awareness is an ongoing cultivation and practice. Does that answer your question? I think, just to add to that, I, mean, I think we need great faith and great compassion. Um, and those are, they have to be built up. In a way, you have to have the faith to have compassion. You know, the faith that compassion itself is uh, valid and uh, um, not just a nice thing to do, but absolutely essential. Really, and I mean essential with a capital E, not, not necessarily important, but of the supreme essence is compassionate. The willingness to be here and saying you actually are here. Um, and this means that all the emotional turmoil and so forth is something that there's nothing, you know, in one sense there's nothing wrong with it, essentially. Um, relatively speaking, it's troublesome and painful and annoying and confusing, but actually. Essentially, it's got as much right to be here as anything else. Um, <laughs> so, you know, that, that's and that, that what we need to do to be able to open to that, is, is my mind, is, is uh, the quality of, of deep heartfulness, the compassion, the ability to receive uh, what's irritating, irrelevant, disappointing, ambiguous, you know, and just be able to, 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 to hold that, to, to take that. That requires great faith. And the two seem to kind of gradually link up. So often, in, you know, in, in, when we lose it, there's a sense of a loss of, of faith, a loss of da- a sense of doubt, a sense of it's going wrong for me, I don't know what to do, and it shouldn't be this way. You know, it shouldn't be this way. We lose faith in the presence of things. Um, so, you know, then one needs to have the sense of great compassion, you know, to receive all that dissonance. You know, how it feels, you know, to, to be hurt and disappointed and irritated, and not just to belittle that, but it really feels that way. So the, the compassion is that which, you know, I know we can, we can, in a way, feel for ourselves, feel for the experience, not kind of um, seen in just purely abstract or philosophical light. It's, it's an empirical experience of what it feels like to be here, sentient, sensate. You know? And that's that willingness to, to, to be sentient, to be sensate, seems to you know, open up yeah, from a cramped state. And then maybe, you know, when, when the the reactivity and the defensiveness and the justifications and the righteous indignation and the how dare they and don't why are people so stupid and all this kind of stuff <laughs> can kind of just say, look, this is just me being hurt, that's all. You know, and then I, can I be with that? That's all it amounts to, really. You know, it comes down to it. You know, there's nothing essentially unfair about being hurt. You know, it's one of the things we experience, and then the way, then, then with that, there can be. This is the noble truth, isn't it? There can be that. It's like this, and the 
the tightness and the reactivity and the struggling and relax and then oh it's it melts through become like like cloud like things pass can pass through and then it gives us faith in presence so the two do you know go together uh, um, and it's true that the sense of the skillful means is again a compassionate thing is to recognize though this is true actually very few of us can really um, achieve, you know, be that open. Be, you know, we haven't, we're not there yet at that level. So we have to say there are skillful means that help to give us some support, protect us, give us places to cool out in, and so on. Because um, it's just, uh, you know, coming out of the, into this conditioned realm through birth means that, uh, you know, we are, uh, our, our awareness is extremely conditioned by that and stuck in that. So the skillful means is, is um, necessary to, in a way, give us access to what's absolute. You don't create the absolute, but you do have to create the conditions to have access to it. Do it do it with the pain or the or the tingly bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's it. You you got it. Sit with it. <laughs> and take it in, take it in deeply. Um and it's a way of you know, realigning yourself to the sense of what's it like to be in, in a body that you don't have to be holding or tightening up around. And it, it's so, apart from just the immediate sense of the, the pleasure and the sense of relief, you know, that you're still in the same body but somehow something's happened. You know. There's also the changes on attitude towards, towards bodily life. You know. As we begin to recognize perhaps bodily life can present us with this quality of, of uplift and joy without really doing much apart from just being present. You know, and there's no, we didn't answer anything or do figure anything out, but something 
opened, something dropped, something shifted. And that's important to, to, dwell, to dwell upon. That, in essence, is, in a, is you know, you're, looking, you're experiencing your own way what are called the noble truths. You know, looking at the cessation of suffering is, is um, delicious. Yeah, it's just um, when I give Dhamma talks, yeah, I don't actually prepare anything. Um, so I just speak from what's coming up in the present moment. Um, <clears throat> so it's rather like I'm actually channeling Ajahn Sajito. <laughs> <laughs> so I often need other people to tell me what he said. Cause <laughs> But uh, yeah, if I remember just getting some reminders, it was talking about um, one of the one of the courts called an annihilationism, which is the uh, you know it's a, it's a de- desire to get out, to get rid of, to get away from. You know? um, so as being one of the one of the very fundamental um, ways in which our volition, our karma tendencies operate. You know? So one of them is we want to get into something, we're enjoying this, this is nice, I want to be with this. Um, and that's one source of karmic drive. And the other source is, I want to get out of this and not be with this. Um, and when we haven't been able to handle um, the experience of, of presence, being present, that is, there's been a lot of distressing things, a lot of confusing things, and also a lot of um, telling us not to be here, you know, that we're not noticed or not interesting or not worthwhile or not useful or something wrong with us we start to, in a way, to withdraw from being present. And you can see this in many public places. You know, people are walking around, there's no eye contact. They're, in, they're just thinking things. And, um, you know, there isn't a sense of actually people fully being where they are. Everybody's thinking about where they're going to be or where they have been, or, but not really actually being really where they are, if you see what I mean. So this, um, apart from anything more violent, there's a... There's a a sense of withdrawal from actually fully opening and being present with what's going on. Um, and that is, that's, that's a safe place, or a relatively safe place for us. And when things are a bit hectic or confusing or whatever, or we feel a sense of mistrust in the situation we're in, or frightened of it, or nervous, or self-conscious, we withdraw. And then we feel a bit safer in there, nobody can see me in here. Um, you know, and I'm okay in here, you know, and if people are out there, fine, leave them, you know, you keep your space, I'll keep mine, I'm in here. And very much a sense of being 
in. Uh, and I think I was making the point that we can come to meditation with that same kind of quality. I mean, it's difficult not to because um, you know th- this is. I think this is an, a good element, and this is present in all of us. It is difficult being out there. There is a lot of distrustful stuff. So we, we meditate. I want to get something together in here, in myself. I want to get some nice spaces. I want to calm down. I want to feel good in here. And that's understandable. Um, but what tends to happen with that is there is um, an unwillingness and even a denial of dealing with some of the distress that's occurred. So we're still looking for the good place, the place where we won't be disturbed, the place where we can be calm and protected. Um, uh, you know, uh, so that even not, not just stuff that's really outside, but even elements of our own distress we want to get away from. I don't want to have to deal with my feeling of shame. Or, so I, I go to a place where I don't even notice it anymore. You know? And maybe I find a, a meditation object that I can get into. I don't have to notice those rather unsettling experiences. So I'm not noticing that. And I'm withdrawing and getting into there. Um, but then I find, actually, my mind doesn't settle down very well when I'm trying to do that. You know, because that is an increasing sense of withdrawal and, I and parts of my mind just don't get in there. So all the time it's my thinking mind is breaking out, breaking out, wild babble, daydreams. And so I'm having to apply a bit of force to try and get it in there and quiet it down, quiet it down into this rather removed space, which I call meditation. So you know, I'm thinking like crazy, stop thinking, get it in there get in there. <coughs> um, but the whole energy of that means that I'm getting, uh, you know, I, I haven't dealt with the core distress. I've been able to deal with the distress. I've decided distress is not what I want to meet. I want to meet something that's pleasant and comfortable. I don't want to meet distress. And once I've set up that attitude, I keep withdrawing, withdrawing, withdrawing. The very act of withdrawing sets up the scenario for more distress, you know, in that, that, that there's a certain struggle between parts of me, you know, the bit that wants to get away and the bit that's demanding, craving some healing or some attention. And I keep withdrawing from that, it's too messy. I keep withdrawing from that and it just craves even more. Um, and it starts getting really outrageous. And so these kind of, you get powerful impressions, powerful, I get very irritable with people. Um, and my thinking mind keeps breaking out. I withdraw from all this stuff. Um, so I think this is not an unusual experience of meditators, at least for me. Um, and it leads to hell because the whole instinct, the whole movement that is, is one of uh, unwillingness to be here and uh, it starts to bring up quite dismissive and harsh energies. Um, so one aspect of when one can't, um, you know, of dealing with this turbulence is we begin to stand apart from it and make judgments. So we get judging ourselves. We start to make judgments about other people. Um, how many times, you know, do you find in retreat situations 
I'm getting upset because somebody's coughing or sneezing. You know, and people shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. So things that in the, you know, this is what bodies do. This is what folks do. You know, this is what it is. But my withdrawals from that makes it irritating for me. And I feel irritated by them. I feel, start to feel really irritated by them. I'm really actually quite angry. <laughs> so I'm actually generating through that withdrawal an extreme unwillingness to be with any degree of dissonance. And so, with, as, as a dissonance keeps chasing me, you know, you know, and I want to withdraw, I start to get some, some anger, some violence, and these are hell realm tendencies. I get irritated with myself, exasperated with myself, exasperated with other people, fed up with meditating, and so that you get some quite negative states begin to come up from that inclination to continually withdraw, and withdraw, and withdraw. And um, this is what I mean by it. Um, and it's something that we don't necessarily really fully get hold of because it's so, it's, it can be so total, you know, and so seductive. You know, it doesn't come up, it doesn't come up as hatred, it comes up as, well, I just want somewhere nice be for a little while, you know, be quite reasonable, yeah. Yeah. and it, it's not fair, this isn't happening, I deserve, and it's not fair, and this kind of thing, and these are all, um, you know, the, these are the sort of quiet ways in which we buy into this act of withdrawal, but it does slip into some very um, life-negating attitudes. Mm. And so whole elements of our own um, emotional and psychological life get left outside. And um, elements to do with relationship get left outside. Uh, so this is the, you know, the, the wanting to get away, wanting to get rid of. So one is actually sowing a particular seed karmic seed and um, leads to what we call a hell realm which is a a realm of darkness and unhappiness and um, bitterness I mean, if you're really in that state, just try to, I would say, relate to the emotion, relate to the emotion, you know, which can be one of irritation or disappointment or despair or grief, you know. It's not to be, I don't want to criticize this instinct, you know, say we shouldn't do it or we're stupid because we do it. I do it, you know, maybe I'm stupid, but it doesn't help, 
you know, to, to do that. But we're saying relate to those, emo- to feel the feeling, you know, which is one of trying to contract. And it's, a, it's sad, it's grief, it can be rage, it can be disappointment, it can be like that. And so if we take, simply speaking, we take away the, the storyline, which is how, why it shouldn't be and what I've always done and how this never works for me and what am I like and all that. This is what I call the stories. Just get down to the actual feeling of that kind of cringing or distaste. Um, and then, wow, this feels painful. Um, and sense of compassion for someone who has to feel this. Yeah. Just a sense of, of having compassion for oneself or having to feel for feeling this. This this terrible, hurt, disappointed, frustrated feeling. So I I would personally start with that. I think the only thing I can I could add really is is, is that we often we often feel that well, our meditation practice begins when what we're experiencing goes away. And, and I think one of the values of a retreat like this is to really challenge that assumption that meditation practice is about working with what's happening right now. And so that state then becomes the field in which the meditation practice deepens. So we don't need to get rid of that in order to meditate. We need to open up to that and feel it and see what is what is that like? What is that like in the body? How is that? How does that express itself in the body? And what's the reaction to it? Because in my my experiences with some of these difficult states is like anger has its own energy to it, but the overlay of like finding anger so deeply unacceptable to experience makes it a challenge in and of itself just to allow it to be present. So for me, part of my meditation practice has been to begin to catch the reaction to the feeling which doesn't allow. And then as I can hold the aversion to the anger and get back to the actual experience of anger, anger is just a an energetic experience is not something that I need to be frightened of or not accept. And then as I can go further into, well, what is it actually like in the body? Then the complexity of it shifts and the energy which has been feeding it falls away.
I think the only way we ourselves can tell if something is skillful or avoidance is to watch the results. Skillful means results in the ending of suffering or bringing about balance to condition. And avoidance ends up with more suffering. So we need to see what our intention is and then follow it through with results to see what the consequences are, to be able to trace back and get a feeling for how that was. I know there are often times our intention is often mixed. It can be mostly skillful means and a trace of avoidance. And so to the extent that there is some avoidance present, there'll be some negative result with that, that we'll need to feel the consequences of at a later time. So for me, these are the ways that I can decipher and discern how things are unfolding is by uh, checking out both intention and result. Question in the back? often work with the sound of silence and for me that the, oh, I'm sorry the question was is how does the sound of silence or the not a sound um, kind of support what we've been doing so far and, and relate to this uh, question of working with emotional um, uprisings for lack of a better word sounds like some kind of a political <laughs> political event um for me, the sound of silence is a, is, a, is a very, it's a sign, it's not, um, it's a sign of the unconditioned, it's not the unconditioned itself, but it's a sign that's not based on conditions, for it's, it, it's the conditioning for it is the unconditioned. So what that means is, is, is that it, it's, for me, it's like a gateway. It's a gateway to the stillness of the heart, to presence, to pure awareness. And when that's strong, when that when that sign is strong, then, then the ability to relax with presence and in pure awareness is also correspondingly strong. So that creates a field in which emotions can arise and the stability to embrace them without reacting. So sound of silence for me has been a powerful tool and uh, I find it very useful. How that relates to presence, mm, what, what I know is, is that when there is a frame of reference that is larger than the objects of my experience, then it makes awareness and presence able to be with objects of experience, even if those objects are painful, disagreeable, or frightening, or uh, in the kind of category we would normally term unacceptable. Because we are no longer having to identify there's something else that we can relax into. When that sense of pure awareness or presence isn't so strong, then it's natural that the things that we experience are the things that we identify with. And so we would want to have pleasant ones and get rid of unpleasant ones. 
So our ability just to be with that which is arising, which is unskillful or, I mean, un, uh, disease, lacking ease, is, is, de- is partly dependent on our, the degree of presence. So this retreat, there's been a, a tremendous emphasis on developing presence with body as a field or a framework in which everything else can be known. And so presence in my own understanding, it would be interesting to hear what Ajahn has to say about this, but for me, presence is not... Mm, presence, presence is the quality of awareness that is able to greet experiences. It's not, it's not dissimilar. Uh, but when we are if I can work this out. When presence comes from the breath or from the body, from awareness of the breath or awareness of the body, and we are using these signs to stabilize Awareness, because the signs themselves are conditioned and changing. It seems to me in my own personal experience that my tendency is to lean more into the conditions rather than to into the awareness. When one is working with a sign like the nada or the sound of silence, which is also a sign. The gateway of it is more closely linked to that which is unconditioned. And so for me personally, when I'm resting with the sound of silence, the resting in awareness is stronger than my tendency to lean into the objects. I don't know if that helps or makes it worse. You'll have to say. Does that help you answer a question? <laughs> it, it doesn't answer the question. <laughs> I mean, uh, do you want to have a go? Yeah, it's, um, it's a useful thing, sound of silence. I've always had some reservations about it because I used to get this when I was into serious substance abuse. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, I take, take some acid, LSD or something, I could get into this sound of silence experience. Um, so I've always had some kind of qualms about really making a lot out of it. Because um, it seems to me it's... it's, it's it's something that, that occurs, it's like a, the way that when, when some of the content of mind is emptied, um, <laughs> then uh, and certain you know, structures of mind relax, then it's like this is the, the uh, a certain resonance arises. And this resonance can be when it's, when it's attuned to through the auditory channel, you get this kind of particular ringing quality. Um, and it's a, when it's occurred, when it's attuned to through the k- 
kinetic or tactile channels, you get a particular sense of um, um, like space, um, sense of felt space. Uh, and if it's attended through the visual, you get things like luminosity. So, and any of those can be taken as as signs. You know, you begin to you know, when you when you lose it, you know, you, you're getting kind of caught up in particular moods or something like that, or you're getting caught up in objects, which Jantana Santi was alluding to. You know, then you kind of rest back into that particular um, sign, you know, like luminosity or resonance or spaciousness or this sound of silence. Um, and it's it's skillful. It's very helpful. Um, but I th- I think one also has to uh, not grasp it. You know, the the of thinking it is something. You know, now I've got it, and that's that's the case with everything really. Um, you know, or or make anything out of it other than it's a useful. Um, way uh, which one can have, have access to, to letting go and um, use it, make use of it, don't cling to it, don't make an ideology out of it, make use of it and um, realize that it, it, it can come from just essentially it comes from being present, it arrives from and that's an that's an embodied state, uh, and much also I think with such such these rather sublime signs, one has to be aware of you know how one handles conditioned elements within that. Whether we become rather um, dismissive or or, or or unresponsive to conditioned dhammas, you know, we can kind of just bliss out into something, which is what I used to do, um, and become rather, you know, downplay the relevance or the karmic relevance of conditioned phenomena. So there's a, it seems that the, the quality of meeting, you know, the, that, the, the sublime signs and the particular phenomena that arise within them, you know, has to be also attuned. Well, 
I think just to maybe take two parts of that. One is the very experience you're having now, or when it comes up in your mind. Um, you know, I'm in. You know, you know, I'm quite open, quite receptive, quite resonant. You know, sensitive to many things. Wow, what's going to be like when I get back on the on the street, as it were? You know, and that very thing that comes up right now when you bring that into your mind. Well, that's part of it. You know, the fear. Um, the fear of the future, the fear of being hurt, the fear of that. And so, you know, right now, just handling that particular perception and that particular thing that's happening right now, we don't know, you know. Um, can I sense of where, where actually handling one's own, handling the, the fear and the anxiety um, you know, is, is one of the things that we're trying to open up a, a place of presence to to allow that to be received. And my sense is that from being able to receive some of that in the present moment, one begins to get a certain quality of breadth and spaciousness and firmness um, that that certainly endow one with the possibilities to be um, more <coughs> um, imaginative. Uh, to define boundaries to be, when, you, when you leave. So that's part of it. The second part of it is that um, we do need convention, conventional means. We do need to have things, other than just pure awareness, we also need to have conventional supports such as precepts, such as sense restraints, such as good friends, such as creating boundaries around our life. You know, things that may be good, but I can't, I really can't do this right now. You know? And I don't, you know, other than this, I don't really, you know, have, have answers because in a way it has, everybody has to find out within that. You know? And it means that there's always a certain amount of having to let go of things that, that one would like to do or feels one should be with. Um, certain amount of times you have to say, well, I'm sorry, no. You know, uh, I can't do this, I can't manage this. Um, and, and all that that entails. Um, and it's the, again, it's coming from the recognition that uh, unless you take responsibility for your own subjective life in the world. You're not just doing yourself harm, you're colluding in the general disrespectful way in which people treat each other. You, know, you count a lot. And it's, it's up to you to be responsible to your own subjective sense, to, to know this is not proper for me, this is not suitable for me. And if you keep overriding that, whatever good intentions occur, you're actually modeling. You know, you're both doing yourself, I'm also modeling, uh, you know, an example for others. I think it's important that we begin to model different examples. You know, someone who, who is not coming from a place of aversion, but just a place of clarity, says, this is not, you know, this is not suitable, this is not appropriate, I can't manage, you know, I don't need to manage this. Um, and there's, there's a huge amount there, uh, and there's no way in which I could 
personally, you know, give you all the details of that, but I think those are, those are my suggestions. When we leave here, uh, it's, I think it's most important that we can keep in touch with our meditation practice, our sense of personal standards, and perhaps a, something that is re- equally important is we have spiritual friends, you know, who you can kind of get some external confirmation from. The only thing, the only thing I I could add really is, is that one of the skills of of learning how to meditate is to learn how to deal with situations when we're not able to meditate. And um, what I what I mean by that is, like for example, in the way this uh, course is set up, with the morning chanting and the precepts that we keep, and the bowing and the setting the shrines up and these things which seem like, well, maybe not so necessary or kind of devotional activities that one might not necessarily connect with. My personal experience is there were times when my health was low and I wasn't able to focus very well and I couldn't concentrate hardly at all. And the normal way that I'd associated with meditation, you know, the kind of insight practice, was not something that I had real access to. And and overwhelm was was a familiar experience. But there were, even when I was really low, and my energy was really low, I was always able to chant and I was always able to bow. And for me, these simple practices of just being able to chant and just being able to bow were powerful. It was like the whole of my practice, really. It's like I could, I could just kind of collect up the confusion and the, and the bewilderment and the overwhelm and, 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 sort of, and offer that up. That, that was what I had to offer up in this gesture of bowing and, and just re- reciting the you know, simple words of the praise of the Buddha or recollecting the, the, the virtue of the Dhamma and, and, and considering the, the value of community. And so I think as important as it is to become skilled in meditating, it's to develop skills in what to do when we're not up to it as part of our practice, which includes the sila, includes generosity, includes uh, devotional practices and in, in, uh, not as some kind of um, requirement to become good, but as a really powerful foundation for supporting mm, the heart's opening to our own goodness when the, the material that we're working with is, is rich and, and uh, requires time for it to settle. The only other thing to add is, is, is that I think particularly in a context like this where there's very little impact and sense impact, there's quite a lot of internal impact and you know the Dhamma teachings are rich and open up for huge areas. This is that we tend to confuse like clarity, concentration and mindfulness. And so when we're able to discern quite clearly the differences between the different fields as they are arising within a clear experience of a bodily presence, we think that's meditating. And when the whole thing becomes a blur or it feels overwhelmed, we think, well, we're no longer meditating because we've confused the clarity and precision with the arising of things with the ability to know what's happening. Overwhelm is a... Is a an, um, a valid object of meditation. 
And for many of us, one that we need to learn how to just attend to, what's the experience of overwhelm as a bodily experience? And that's a valid object of meditation and a valid way of practicing. So I think perhaps that's enough questions for this evening. And uh, we can close with the sharing of blessings and the closing homage.